You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that says, relax. The air attack warning sounds like, this is the sound. Of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Hello once again, my name is Sean Engel, and today we're going to be covering Green Lantern comic number 15. This is the second part of the mosaic title, where we're going to be looking at Jon Stewart and the troubles that he's going to be having on the planet of Oa, which is incredibly yellow if you listen to the last issue, and all the problems with the aliens that have been transplanted there. Forewarned, this issue and the next couple of issues tend to get a bit more preachy. I'm not one of those people who really enjoys, you know, courting controversy or taking on big issues like racism in my podcast, but unfortunately that's what the comics are talking about this time around, and We'll have to approach that when we, when we get to it. But the one thing I don't mind approaching is email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this one comes from Mr. Michael Bradley, host of a myriad number of awesome podcasts, including The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Legends of the Batman, and Green Lantern's Light. Michael writes in, Sean, thanks a lot for the kind words about Green Lantern's Light in the, last, in the latest episode. I consider it high praise that our disparate styles are actually a selling point, for lack of a better term. Well, to be honest, that the fact that you three guys do have differing opinions and podcast styles makes it for a much better show than just a bunch of people would sit around agreeing with each other. Michael continues saying, That was a major concern of mine when we started the show, as Jeffrey, Dave, and I have widely differing podcast styles and personalities, which, unfortunately, I trampled over his words, so there you go. He says, glad to see that it's working despite that. No, it is working because of that. The show's awesome. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, go check it out. Back to the email, Mike writes, since, quote-unquote, some time has passed, since my last email, I'll say that I'm still enjoying just one of the guys. I'm happy you decided to do both Animal Dawn series, too. Well, thank you, Michael. I enjoyed doing those episodes as well. Uh, I hope you guys got as much enjoyment out of it as I did. He goes on saying, Not only would doing the second make little sense without the first, but the first really does define that that particular era of Green Lantern and comics in many, all, in so many ways. Also, the fact that you were able to use Johnny Cash and Thin Lizzy as your opening tunes in two consecutive episodes and actually make it work within the context of the show is awesome. Well, I kind of mentioned that in the last episode that 
I try and pick music for the openers that in some way ties with the story. You know, sometimes I succeed, and sometimes, like last time, I put a Starship song that's going to be buzzing in your head for the next couple of days or so, and you're going to want to try and do anything to get it out of there. And Michael concludes with, Keep up the great work on the show, and before I forget, thanks for the continued plugs of Thrilling, too. Signed, Michael Bradley. Well, thanks, Michael. Thanks for writing in. I do enjoy the shows that Michael produces. They're all great stuff. And now that it's recently started back, I need to add to my podcast library Michael's return to coverage of The Batman in a format that's similar to his coverage of Superman on Thrilling Adventures. So, this is going to be my awkward segue of taking a break and playing a few promos for a podcast that you guys should all be listening to. So, after the break, we'll get started with Green Lantern number 15. And now, folks, it's time for who do you trust? Hubba, 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 money, money, money. Who do you trust? Me? I'm giving away free money. And where is the Batman? Okay, let's try this another way. Where's Bruce? People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored, I can be destroyed, but as a symbol, as a symbol, I can be incorruptible. I can be everlasting. Giant, menacing, supernatural form. Kind of like a bat. Every punk in this town is scared stiff. You know what they say? They say he can't be killed. They say he drinks blood. There's nothing mere about that mortal. Who, who are you? I'm your worst nightmare. I don't know who he is behind that mask of his, but I do know when we need him. And we need him now. Where are you? Here. Ah! Legends of the Batman. Everything Batman from the beginning. Available at BatmanLegends.com. Let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman.
Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. The funeral is over. Jonathan Kent is on the mend. So, uh, how's Clark's father? Oh, much, much better. Lois has returned home. Lois, over here! Harry, what? Since when did you start meeting your staff at the airport? How'd you know I was returning on that flight? A good editor checks out his answers, Lois. I got a hot story of once you went straight away. I'm parked over here. But just as Metropolis has learned to live without the Man of Steel... I know, there was only one Superman, but Metropolis just hit the jackpot. Because we got four Supermen now, and nobody knows which of them, if any, is the real McCoy. Four beings of incredible power and intellect have laid claim to the Man of Steel's name. The last son of Krypton. I live. The Man of Steel. Man of Steel coming through. Nobody moves. This is a bust. The Cyborg. Yes, I'm Superman. I'm back. The Boy of Steel. Put me down. Listen, pal, don't ever call me Superboy. Capiche? The reign of the Superman is upon us, and so from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast begins its epic coverage of this last act in the epic Death and Return of Superman saga. Every week, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, along with the best and the brightest in the podcasting community, will cover this event in all of its forms, from the comics to the novelizations, to the audio drama, and beyond. Superman is back, but is any of them the real Man of Steel? Find out on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, located at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limson.com
And we're back. So let's start with Green Lantern number 15. Green Lantern number 15 was cover dated August 1991. The cover price was $1 US, $1.25 Canada, and 50 pence UK. The title was Strictures. The writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was M.D. Bright, inkers Romeo Tangal, letterer was Albert Guzman, colorist was Anthony Tolan, associate editor was Kevin Dooley, and editor was Andy Helfer. The story begins with the Red Aliens emerging from their underground bunker and firing on the encroaching humans. Green Lantern John Stewart flies in to try and contain the violence between the two groups, all the while wondering why the humans decided to take the fight to the aliens. As John puts up ring construct barriers to slow them, the yellow mohawked aliens continue to blast away at the barriers. Seeing that the yellow from their weapons is penetrating the barriers, John decides to evacuate the humans before the aliens discover his ring's weakness. Carrying them off via ring construct birds, the humans still feel that John isn't on their side as the red-skinned aliens march into their city. But John is unwilling to let them get too far in as he uses Construct Fist to take out the Horde. Due to a misplaced explosion, one of the aliens' building erupts in flames, throwing off blast of flames onto an escaping alien, as well as the homes of the humans. John has to take drastic measures to stop the fire, including breaking open the town's water tower and digging the fire break. As John is attempting to slow the fire, Hot Widow Mom has carried the severely burnt alien away from the explosion, and back to where the other humans were gathering. Angered by the presence of one of their attackers, the mob orders Rose to get away from the alien as they prepare to execute it. But Rose has a different idea, as she fires her shotgun off into the air. Hearing the gunfire, John races to the scene and restrains Rose, until he realizes that she was the one defending the alien from the mob, who now unload into the alien's body. But John's put up a force field over the badly burned alien, and realizing that he's not making any headway with either race, decides to use the ring to force up sections of the ground, creating a mountainous wall between the two factions. Some time has passed, and John and Rose have taken the burned alien back to John's apartment in hopes of healing and communicating with him. John marvels at Rose's bravery, and the two get into a discussion about everything that's going on. Rose comments that John has put up walls not only around the towns, but around himself to keep people out. John then tells a tale of feeling isolation during the riots that went on in Detroit during the 60s. Rose recalls the riots, and comments that growing up poor made her acutely aware of the reasons behind the riots. John counters that it wasn't just a black versus white issue, and that he has had to walk a fine line between fitting in Rose had a similar discrimination by people who rejected her for being perceived as too smart. And as the sexual tension is reaching a peak, John and Rose come to the conclusion that all of this pretense could just be resolved with a good cup of coffee. What? <laughs> Meanwhile, the humans are meeting in a local church to discuss the situation at hand. Tensions are on the rise as people begin to accuse each other as well as the neighboring aliens. Finally, one lady pipes up and says that Rose had a device that she used to communicate with the aliens. So, as Rose heads home to greet her son Toby, she is confronted by the armed mob of humans who demand that she give up her translator. Cut to Tomar 2, 
who is negotiating a deal with another alien for a portable universal translator. The two are about to come to an agreement in the sale of the devices when Tomar's original translator goes off. The voice is that of Moses Rockwell, the leader of the mob, who asks Tomar about the Green Lantern. Tomar claims that all the citizens of Zudar are friends with the Green Lanterns, to which Moses replies that the Lanterns are conspiring against them. Tomar thinks that Moses is mad, and Moses abruptly hangs up on the Zudari. Wondering what the situation is with the humans, Tomar asks the peddler for enough of the translators to outfit all the members of his interspecies union they have created, because they are going to have to find out what the situation is themselves. Back in John's apartment, he is tending to the burnt alien while simultaneously trying to tap into its mind. All he can see, though, is a need for rampant expansion. John is reminded of Hal's telling of the story of the Tiktiki and how the Guardian's isolation of them turned out badly. Stopping the mind probe, John realizes that the only choice he has to stop these aliens is by killing them. And John won't allow himself to become a killer again, not after what happened with Sanchi and Katma. John forces himself to fall asleep, but it's a fitful rest as his dreams are filled with strange voices. At the same time, Rose is confronting Moses and the mob outside her home. Moses claims that it's us or them, but one of the people at the house wonders if the kids who were murdered actually provoked the aliens. Moses screams that the kids only approached the aliens in peace, and that all they wanted to do was communicate. And as Moses breaks down, we realize that the young boy who was trying to make first contact was actually Moses' son. But the breakdown is interrupted by a knock on the door. It seems that Tomar and the rest of the aliens Rose was communicating with have come to the farmhouse to discover what's going on. And, as we cut back to awaken John Stewart, we see that his mind has been filled with visions. Visions of the human mob gunning down Tomar too, and the rest of the aliens. I think there's no small amount of irony that the leader of the mob in this comic has the name of Moses. I'm certain the obvious parallels between the biblical character of Moses and this character in the comic are supposed to be easily recognized. Of course, as with a lot of comic book cliches, when you get a character who has a name of a, well, a powerful person for positive good, he will usually be associated with the negative side in comics. So... In this case, the Moses is really leading the mob to cause harm and separate the people, rather than the Moses of biblical writings, who was meant to be a uniter. Well, at least of the Israelites. He didn't do much for the Egyptians. And we'll also get into more name-dropping that obviously has a connotation that could be placed towards biblical passages in the next couple of issues as well. So, look forward to a bunch of religiosity in this. We, But enough of that. Let's get to Notes Official. We'll start off with a cover. 
Here we get essentially the shot that we had in the first issue of Green Lantern, well, not Green Lantern Mosaic, but the story of Green Lantern Mosaic, where one of the, and I guess we're going to call the Red Aliens, the Horde, has shot John Stewart in the back, and it's a really dynamic cover. You see John just getting blasted in the back by this beam of energy, and him just yelling out in pain. There's a lot of nice oranges and yellows in there, and obviously the yellows are probably interfering with the Green Lantern ring shielding, so John's feeling a bit of pain right here. Page 2, panel 2. As the firefight's going on, Rose runs in to save one of her friends named Jimmy. However, if you look at the picture of Jimmy, I think it's actually a different character. He's got kind of a flat-top haircut and a sort of 70s porn stash, so I'm thinking he's actually redneck J. Jonah Jameson. I mean, aside from the blonde hair, he looks pretty much like Jonah. You know, the head's really square, and he's got that 70s stash, so kind of odd to see him on Oa, and kind of odd to see him in DC book, but there you have it. Page 3, panel 5. Now, I know in my notes, or in my synopsis, I said that, you know, John created ring construct birds to fly the uh, humans off. Well, they're not really birds. They look more like pterodactyls. Not really like the typical pterodactyls. Kind of like a weird, freaky hybrid of pterodactyls and birds. So, you can kind of imagine why the humans would be kind of freaked out when these giant green ring construct bird pterodactyl things are coming to pick them up. I'd be pretty creeped out by it as well. Then we get to page 5, panel 1, and we've got this explosion of one of the horror's major buildings. And I'm not really certain if John intentionally did it, but it looked like in the previous panel some of his constructs may have veered off and hit the building in an unexpected way. So technically John is probably responsible for more deaths and more devastation in the horde than the humans are. So just saying, John, when you're pointing one finger at one person, there's three more pointing back at you. And usually one pointing up, but that doesn't really matter. And then on page 6, panel 7, John puts out the fires with a squirt gun. A giant ring construct squirt gun. Now, I get it. His ring is affected by yellow, and he even says that the flames are essentially yellow, which I don't necessarily buy. They contain many other colors of the spectrum, but we'll just go with it. But a giant squirt gun to put it out? You know, you couldn't have gotten a fire hose or even done the thing that Hal did in the first issue of the relaunch Justice League and do a giant fire truck. It's just kind of it's just kind of silly. Page 9, we got a nice full-page splash of John flying by and shooting his ring into the ground to force a section of the ON soil up in the air to create this sort of natural barrier between the two cities. And I know it's it's kind of hard because you can't really call the soil on Oa Earth because that's technically the name of the soil on Earth. So I'm wondering what you would call the soil on the planet Oa. It's Dolomite, baby! Hmm, maybe not. Page 11, panel 4, as John has brought Rose up to his apartment for coffee, and you can't see the air quotes there. Rose, who is taking a look through John's record collection, or I guess at this point CD collection, makes the comment, Wait, you listen to Streisand? 
It's a nice callback to the beginning of the guy and his Nord storyline, but I think it's only funny when Guy is ripping John. You know, Rose doing it, it seems a bit out of place. Plus, with John as stressed out as he is, it's probably not the best time to be ripping about it, ripping him about his taste in music. Pages 12 through 14. Here's where the book tends to get a bit wordy and it get a bit preachy. We've got John all upset about what's going on on Oa. So he recounts the story of the Detroit riots and how he was a young kid and sat at home and basically watched that and really didn't feel a connection to the anger that the rioters had over the obvious you know, racism that was going on during that time. And Rhodes then tells the story of her being born sort of a poor, you know, actually kind of a poor coal miner's daughter because they originally said that she was born in a mining town and that she remembered the race riots as well, but her take on it was, why do all the uh, black people that are poor get on TV while the white people that are poor really get the short shrift? John retorts with, even though he was poor and black, he wasn't undereducated. He, the racism that he had to deal with was not only coming from intolerant white people, but coming from intolerant black people as well. If he acted educated and everything around his black friends or hung around with some white friends, his black friends would think him as, well, he doesn't say Uncle Tom, but he said that his black friends would stare at him if he was walking down the street with a white person. Rose, of course, then counters, saying that, well, she got the same sort of treatment. If the people who she lived around with, who were poor didn't hear her talking like a redneck and saying ain't, they would think that she's uppity and too good for them. But the people who actually had some amount of wealth would look on her as a poor piece of white trash. And it's in this moment where the two are arguing and they're getting closer and closer and it looks like they're going to do the typical movie cliche angry kiss thing, but... Eventually it breaks off, and the sexual tension is eased, and they have coffee. Well, technically they actually do have coffee. They don't do the other thing, which is... Coffee is a metaphor for. And even though I haven't read it, I've got to assume that in the Green Lantern mosaic ongoing, the relationship between Rose and John kind of grows a bit. So here we see, I guess, the blossoming love of John Stewart and Rose Harden. That's kind of neat. Moving on, I don't have too much notes about the conversation between Tomar and Moses, and so I just skipped to page 18, panel 1, and it's kind of odd. I'm wondering how you can tell that a alien whose skin is bright, bright red has been burned. Maybe the best way you can tell is because this alien doesn't seem to have the long, flowing mohawk that, that the other aliens have, so... Maybe you can determine that it, the fact that his hair has been burned off, that he's been burned. But being that his skin is a bright, glowing red, you've got to assume that already he, he looks like he's been burned. And same page, panel two. We get a nice callback to Animal Dawn with the uh, mentioning of the tick-tick, or I guess now it's the tick-ticky. I guess they added the double eyes after it to define the race. It's a nice correlation to show the well, the folly of trying to isolate a race. And it's also another example of the Guardians trying to do some experimentation with aliens that really possibly could go very badly. 
Here, this time, instead of having the Guardians do the isolation, they're seeing what John would do, and unfortunately they're finding that John took the same approach that they did with, if you remember Emerald Dawn 1, or Emerald Dawn, the series part 1, isolating the aliens on their planet didn't work out so well. Page 19, panels 1 through 3, we get more dialogue about what happened on Zanshi with John, and how tortured he is over this, and basically the fact that he hasn't told anyone and that he's putting up barriers between himself and other people to try and block out his feelings and emotions about what happened there is paralleled in what he's doing on the planet and could also be seen as a motivator for why he's trying to separate these alien species rather than try and, well, bring them together and communicate about their differences. In the same page, panels 6 through 8, we get some more dialogue going through John's head, except this time the thought balloons are tinted with a sort of light blue color. Hmm. There seems to be voices inside John's head who have thought balloons that are colored a sort of bright alien blue. Hmm. I wonder who that could be. Then skip ahead to page 20, panel 7. We finally get the motivation behind Moses, the guy who's basically rallying up and stirring up all the trouble with the humans and wanting to get them to start fighting the aliens in Green Lantern. We find out that the reason Moses is all riled up about killing aliens is that his son was the one who was initially killed by the red horde aliens at the beginning of this series. It's a good motivating factor, it makes his character a lot more well-fleshed out than just someone who is basically a complete racist or xenophobe, and it keeps the story from being just a story, a typical telling of you know racial tensions, and gives it an actual drama to it that you might not find in oh, lesser books dealing with this these type of issues. And finally, page 22, we had a really good splash page of John doing his best Darth Vader impression. As he has these visions in his head of the aliens who are approaching Moses at the farm get violently gunned down. However, again, it is rather odd. These visions that John has in his mind, they're all a sort of light blue hue. Hmm, that's interesting. Why would John be having visions in his mind that are colored this sort of light blue color? Hmm. I'm certain there's nothing to see here. Well, that ends the coverage of the issue. Let's go ahead and go back and see if we've got any interesting ads this time around. Starting out on the front inside cover, we've got the Ultimate Game Boy game, and it's the Game Boy version of WWF Superstars, and it's got basically all your favorites, the Ultimate Warrior, Macho Man, Randy Savage, and the Hulkster himself. Yes, Lou Ferrigno. No, it's Hulk Hogan, sadly. And it's all in beautifully rendered, single-colored glory. So, if you as a kid were a big wrestling fan, this was probably a big deal to you. Sadly, for me, it, it wasn't all that big a deal. Then later in the book, you get Electrify Your Campaign with the Tome of Magic, and you get this sort of giant, bearded wizard, you know, hovering over what I guess looks to be a planet not unlike Earth. 
you know, shooting lightning bolts out of his finger. And it's a ad for the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons expansion, the Tome of Magic, which basically, if I recall, added a lot of new magic user spells and what they called, I think, cantrips, which were small spells which you didn't need any elements like, you know, phosphorus or whatever, or any items that you needed to make these spells happen. So it was a neat little expansion for the Advanced Dungeons Dragons game. I vaguely remember using it. Some of the spells were kind of neat, but basically we still just went with the same old tried-and-true spells like Fireball. Then the next page, we get a five-for-a-dollar ad for the Science Fiction Book Club. And there's some neat books here. We've got Stranger in a Strange Land. Got a few Star Trek books, Prime Directive. A couple of Piers Anthony and Robert Silverbook. Silverberg book, so and it's an interesting deal, and it's a more appropriate than football or baseball cards in a comic book setting. Of course, mentioning that, the next couple of pages, after a couple of pages, we get kickoff 1999 with score. Yes, score football cards. So, they're still advertising them, and I'm still not buying them. Then we get an ad for the Great Eastern Conventions and their two hot shows in Albany, New York, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And that's a nice splash page. It gives the list of their schedule for the upcoming month. But it does have a image of the Demon, DC's uh, sort of superhero, well, not superhero, but DC's character, the Demon. And he looks a bit off. He's colored, his skin is colored a bright green, and... If I recall, I usually remember the demon to be a sort of amber or yellow, so it's a bit odd. His face and left fist are green, so it's a weird coloring mistake there. Later on, we get the splash page for all the comics you can buy through My High, Mile High Comics, so there's that again. And right after that, the typical hodgepodge page of, you know, building muscles and drawing superhero characters. This time, though, it's got a neat one for shrunken heads. If you were a child of the 70s, you probably saw these ads all over comics. They were basically apples that you would carve out and let dry that would eventually look like shrunken heads and sort of a voodoo thing going on. It's it's a kind of neat callback to see these, you know, in advertisements and comics in the 90s. Later on, you get a full splash of all the Impact comics that are coming out, including The Fly, The Web... Shield, Jaguar, and the Comet. As I'd mentioned before, these were DC's attempt to make a sort of kid-friendly comic in along with their regular staple of superhero comics. If I recall, they were originally Archie characters that DC acquired the rights to and tried to get going as a sort of way to bring kids into the comics. It's sad to think now that these comics that we'd be reading now, the Green Lantern comics, compared to some of the stuff that DC would be putting out in the, well, past couple of years, would probably actually be considered kids' comics. Then the next page, we get a house ad for subscription order for all the DC comics, and it's a really neat ad. It's kind of got a sunset feeling with some palm trees in the background, and there's this really neat picture of Superman sitting in a lounge chair with a, looks like a nice lemonade, sitting under an umbrella just relaxing and smiling at the viewers. It's it's a really great piece of artwork. I can't tell. It might be... I want to say it might be Garcia Lopez, but I'm not really certain. You'd have to talk with Scott Gardner or Michael Bailey. They're the ones who can automatically figure out who is the artist for the 
especially for the Superman characters. A few more pages in, we've got the annuals for 1991, and if you remember last time, these were the Armageddon 2001 annuals, and this time we've got one for the Flash and Hawkworld. So go check those out and see what Wave Rider is due to muck around with those two guys' continuity. Then on the back inside cover, we get uh, the ad that we covered last time, Laser Invasion, hit him high and hit him low. It's basically the Contra game that allows you to use the laser scope, which I have no idea what it is, some sort of NES peripheral that I, again, would probably believe would not work very well, and looks like a basic Contra ripoff. Then the final outside back page, we get an advertisement, $99.99 for the Atari Lynx. And again, this was the sort of precursor to the Game Boy Color that was put out by Atari. Had some really good games, but just really didn't go anywhere. Mainly because of Nintendo's monopoly over the handheld gaming consoles. But one ad I'd like to spend a little bit of time on is the ad for Faith, which appeared in Batman Legend of the Dark Knight 21. It's a neat picture of, well, basically this group of kids, all dressed up with Batman t-shirts, and a lot of them wearing cutoffs and wife-beater-type t-shirts, and they're all standing there with batons and various sort of blunt weapons, and it looks like they're going to be fighting for the Batman. And they're standing, you know, in the middle of Gotham City, and in the background you can see one of the buildings with the Batman standing up on top of it, silhouetted by the moon. And at the top of the picture, the caption says, he once fought alone, now he's got an army of believers. And it's a neat image, but the thing is, it's a very 90s image. All of the characters look like 90, look like if you showed them to someone today and asked them what identifiable period of time they came from, I think pretty much anyone would say the 90s, because you've got this girl in this cut-off tank top showing her midriff, everyone's wearing berets, there's mullets aplenty, the image is very 90s, and I probably may try and go pick up this issue, because it looks kind of interesting in a weird sort of 90s way. But that's all the commentary I have for this week. I would like to mention that if you want to pick up this issue in collected form, good luck, because it has not been collected like a lot of the stuff from this time period. Sadly, DC has kind of thrown these comics to the wayside. But what I can tell you is that next week we'll be coming back with another episode of Just One of the Guys, where we're going to be covering issue 16 in the Green Lantern comic, which is going to be part 3 of the Mosaic storyline. So... Stay tuned for that, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done civilly out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too. 
as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting in. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there, but if you've got enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you can obviously spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show is Frankie Goes to Hollywood and their song, Two Tribes. If you want to get the song, you can download it from iTunes, download the album from iTunes, or better yet, go to the link at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Up at the top of the page, there is the said Amazon link. Go to Amazon.com and buy the MP3, the CD, or whatever you'd like from Frankie Goes to Hollywood from there. You'll be helping out the Two True Freaks podcast and making sure that artists like Frankie Goes to Hollywood will be associated with the Two True Freaks Network.